We're continuing this morning in our series that we've been in called The Blessed Life. Uh, and Pastor Todd and Pastor Matt challenged us a couple of weeks ago when we started this thing of uh, saying, hey, we want you guys to really stretch yourself. We want you to be in the Word. We want to challenge you. We want you to memorize Matthew chapter 5, 1 through 16, and it is called the Sermon on the Mount, and we're talking about the Beatitudes. And so let me ask you this morning, how are we doing with that? Anybody brave enough to raise their hand? Like you got two of them down maybe, something like that? Well, let me show you uh, so that we all feel about like this. Let me show you one of my friends that she is just crushing it. And she sent Pastor Todd a video this week, and I saw it, and I was like, man, I'm going to steal that. I'm going to use it. Um, so y'all check this out. This is Miss Mariah. Hey, Pastor Todd. Uh, I've been homesick, but I've been working on your challenge. Blessed are the, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the ones who mourn, for they should be comforted. Blessed are the ones who are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the ones who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That's the intro to the message. That's what we're talking about this morning, right there. The first four of this weird or funny word that my seven-year-old calls the Beatitudes. He goes, man, it's a funny word, Dad. We're talking about this weird word called Beatitudes. And I said, yeah, it is kind of a funny word, but it, it's talking about the blessed life. And everybody wants to be blessed in life, right? Are you with me? Everybody want to experience blessing in your life, right? But sadly, very few people find what they're really looking for. And that's because we're looking in all the wrong places. So this morning, we're going to go to the one who has the answers, the one who knows where true happiness is found, this blessed life. And that is Jesus. And he shares with us what this upside-down kingdom looks like in Matthew chapter 5. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the worship that we have already experienced. God, we are desperate for you this morning. God, we know that unless your spirit shows up and is poured out on this place, God, that nothing of significance will really happen. And so, God, we're asking that you would pour out your spirit on this place as we open up your word, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that understand and fall madly in love with you today. Jesus, we want to honor you. We want to show you and tell you that we love you. And so, God, we're asking that this morning would just be a moment for each and every one of us. God, I pray that you would meet with each and every person right where they're at, God, that you would meet them in their greatest point of need and that you would just do what only you can do in our hearts and in our lives. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. So last week, Pastor Matt and Pastor Todd, they, kicked, they, talked, they, they opened this thing up and they started talking about these eight statements that Jesus mentions in Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus gave us what we call the Beatitudes. And we discovered that these statements are describing not things that we should do, but rather attitudes or attributes that should be present in our lives as kingdom citizens. And see, we said that the first four Beatitudes are primarily... Uh, between us and God, that they are our disposition, our vertical response to God. And the last four 
are our disposition towards others. They are more horizontal. And so we're going to look at the first four that are vertical between us and God this morning. This morning, we're going to focus in on the first four and see that the life, as a, the life in the kingdom as a kingdom citizen is an uncommon satisfaction. And we're going to see that this life is a life of uncommon satisfaction that we find in the kingdom life. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 3 is where we're going to pick up this morning. And this is what the word says. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So if you're taking notes, here's the big idea I want us to walk away with this morning, and it's this. It's that the posture we assume to enter into the kingdom life becomes the posture of the kingdom life. Let me say that one more time. The posture that we assume when we enter into the kingdom life becomes the posture of the kingdom life. You see, as we seek to understand these beatitudes, I want us to understand them individually, but I also want us to see that they are not separate in and of themselves, but that each one of them is interconnected, that each one flows one into the other. They work in unison with one another. In fact, the key to understanding the, the Beatitudes is found in the very first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it's been said that you can't even get to the other ones without this one. This is the foundational one. This is, in other words, the first step into the kingdom life. This is what I told the 8 o'clock hour. This is the diving board that you jump off of into the kingdom life or jump into the pool that is the kingdom life. You got to have this one. You cannot get to the others without this one. So it's not a coincidence or not by accident that Jesus starts off and comes out of the gate saying, blessed are those who are poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When Matthew writes these words down, he, there's two, two words in the Greek for this word poor. The first refers to those who struggle to basically just put food on the table. They're, 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 they're just struggling. They've fallen on some hard times. They just don't have enough money to eat. It's what we would call today as college students, right? They're, they're surviving on ramen noodles and cans of tuna, if you will. That's not the word he's using here. The second word in the Greek that describes this word poor is this word tochos. Everybody say tochos. It's a funny word. It's what we would call an onomatopoeia, if you will. An onomatopoeia is a word like boom or hiss that sounds like the word, that it, the thing that it's trying to describe. And so when you say the word tochos, it sounds like you're spitting, Right? So tochos means, literally means this, it means outcasts of society, the despised. It means people that are so low you could spit on them. You see, so often we think of this word poor and we think of people who have very little or maybe just struggling or maybe have just fallen on hard times. And I used to think this way as well until I went on my first 
mission trip back in maybe 2009, 2010. We lived in Florida, and I have a friend named Tim Detellis. And Tim Detellis oversees a mission uh, community in Haiti. His father started it 39 years ago, and Tim has taken it over. And they do an incredible job of ministering to the people and the nation of Haiti. Uh, They have 29 churches now with schools, and it's just an amazing thing. But I flew into Port-au-Prince with some other pastors, and I got to the airport and I flew with Tim from Miami to Port-au-Prince. And I remember as we were talking, I had never been to Haiti, and as we were talking about this, Tim said, hey, I just want to try to prepare you for what you're about to see. A massive earthquake had shook the island uh, that year, and we were going, and people were still just displaced and living in tents, and there were tent cities all over the, the island. And Tim said, I just want to prepare you for what you're about to see. This is not third world poverty. This is fourth world poverty that you're about to see. And he said, when you get there, it's going to take your brain a little while to even comprehend and fathom what you're seeing. And I was like, man, okay, thanks, Tim. I've seen some poverty. I've seen some poor places. I've been on other mission trips. I've been to inner city projects and this and that. And he said, yeah, I know. So have I but nothing compares to what you're about to see. And I said, thank you for the warning. I remember getting to the airport in Port-au-Prince, getting out of the airport, getting on a van, and driving through Port-au-Prince, a city of two million people. And I remember driving down the streets, and the pastors were talking on the van, and all of a sudden, as we started to see the things that were going on and the poverty around us, it fell silent in the van. And everyone was just looking out the windows in disbelief, going, I don't even know how to process this right now. This is poor and poverty like I've never seen. Those kids are starving and they have no clothing on them. They are rummaging through a mountain of garbage and trash. They are fighting the wild hogs and the animals and the dogs and the cats and the whatever else was in there just to find something that might satisfy their hunger. Mothers could not feed their babies and their babies were dying. This was poverty like I had never seen before in my entire life. You see, poor is not having a little or falling on tough times. It means to have absolutely nothing, to be desperate, to be without. And this is what Jesus is describing in verse 3 when he says, blessed are the poor. The other meaning of this word poor is that it would be described in biblical times as the beggar on the street corner who is insufficient in and of themselves to do anything for themselves. They can't do anything. And so they are on their knees with their head down and their hands out and they are begging for someone to help them. They are begging for someone to meet their needs. This is their posture. And when Matthew writes the words of Jesus, when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, blessed are those who realize, God, I am desperate and I am in need. I have nothing and I am nothing without you. I am just like the person that I saw in Haiti rummaging through the trash of this world looking for something that will satisfy me. And if I don't come to the realization that the thing that will satisfy me is Jesus, I'm going to perish. 
This is the uncommon life that he's talking about. This is the uncommon satisfaction that we find in Christ and Christ alone. So when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's saying, blessed is the person who recognizes that they have nothing to offer, that they are desperate, that they're desperate for a relationship with him. In other words, they realize, if you're taking notes, that they are a spiritual beggar and completely dependent upon God. Listen, this is the truth for every single one of us in this room, regardless of who we are, what we've done, what we've accomplished in our lives, how many possessions we have, how wealthy or how successful we are. You and I are broke and poor and desperate without Jesus. We are spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing to offer Jesus saying the blessed life is, the, is first found in this. It is found in a posture of spiritual poverty and a desperation for God. Notice what he says in verse 3. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not will be or could be or maybe, but theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this is good news for you and me if we've realized that we're poor in spirit and we've cried out in desperation for God to do for us what we can't do for ourselves, that ours is the kingdom of heaven. For those who live like this, we don't have to wait for heaven when we get there. We can experience the kingdom of heaven heaven here and now while we're on this earth. How? Well, it begins with a poverty of spirit. This is the first step, if you will, into the kingdom of heaven. And this first step then flows into the second step, which is Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. And it says, blessed are those who mourn. This mourning that he's talking about here flows from this recognition that, God, I'm desperate. I am poor in spirit. I am a spiritual beggar. I am bankrupt. You see, to mourn is to be sorrowful over something. In other words, blessed are those whose hearts break over the things that break God's heart. Or blessed are those who are saddened by what saddens God. The only thing that saddens God or the only thing that makes God mourn or breaks God's heart is sin and its consequences. And so this mourning that we experience as we realize that we are poor in spirit, we are desperate for God, we have nothing to offer Him, moves us into this state of mourning where we realize that we're grieving and sad over our sin because our sin is what makes us poor in spirit, and we have nothing to offer God because of sin in our life, that it has separated us from Him. And so this mourning springs from a a sense of sin, an understanding of sin. It is a tender conscience and from a, a broken heart that we begin to mourn over these things. It's not merely just the acknowledgement of sin of, yeah, yeah, I, I tell a little white lie every now and then. Oh, yeah, I, I, I took some bubble gum from the store when I was a kid. It's not just merely a, a, a recognition of sin or an acknowledgement of sin and just going, oh, I'm sorry, I, I messed up, I shouldn't have done that. Let me give you an example. I have a, an 11-year-old boy and a 7-year-old boy. And if you know boys, they go at it from time to time. And there's a lot of pushing and shoving and, and just a lot of crazy drama going around from time to time. They get irritable and cranky, a lot like me at times. And then they, uh, they might do something to one another. 
and they're just going at it. And I, I interrupt and play the referee, and I'm like, what is wrong with you guys? And I'm like, you better change your attitudes, right? That's what we say as parents. You better fix this. Hey, you go tell him you're sorry. And here's, here's their response at times, sorry. And I'm like, no, 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 time out, come back. You're not sorry. You even said that mean. So you're not sorry. You're just saying sorry because I told you to say you're sorry. But you're really not sorry for what you did. And a lot of times as Christians, that's our attitude when we get caught or when we mess up or when we sin. It's like, okay, I'm sorry, God. I guess I shouldn't do that. And he's like, are you? Because I don't see any mourning. I don't see any brokenness over that sin. And that's not what this word means when he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's not it, it at all. This word implies a deep sense of grief and sorrow. In fact, this word is used to describe the way that someone feels when they're experiencing the pain in, uh, from death of, of a loved one. Standing at a graveside, mourning and grieving over the loss of someone going, I can't even catch my breath. God, I don't know how I move forward from this. God, I, I'm, I'm desperate for you to do something. I can't even function right now. I don't know how to put one foot in front of the other. I don't know how to keep moving on. God, this mourning, this grief, this sorrow that I'm experiencing is paralyzing right now in this moment. How do I move beyond this? That is what he's talking about when he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, right? When we come to the end of ourselves, recognizing that we are spiritual beggars, we should mourn over our condition and cry out for grace. This becomes the posture that we live in as citizens of the kingdom. The Holy Spirit in us convicts us and it shows us that our thoughts, our motives, our actions, our words are often sinful and therefore we mourn over it. And then we repent and we confess and we ask God to forgive us and He is faithful to forgive us. Psalm 34, 8 is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It says, The Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. If you realize that you are poor in spirit and you begin to mourn over your sin and, and your heart breaks for the things that breaks God's heart, you can rest assured that God's word is true and he says that he is near those who are brokenhearted, that he saves those who are crushed in spirit. And so God will enter into your mourning and into your pain. He will rescue you. He will comfort you and he will save you. In fact, Jesus declared that those who mourn are blessed because they shall be comforted. He will meet them in their mourning and he will comfort them in only the ways that he can. You see, this comfort that Jesus is referring to here is the comfort that he provides to those mourning over their sin, but it is the comfort of salvation that he will enter into that mourning when you realize you are poor and desperate and you realize that you are a sinner separated from God and you are crushed and you are brokenhearted and you're mourning over your sin. He will be near the brokenhearted. He will save those who are crushed in spirit. He will enter into that and he will comfort you by saving you and forgiving you of your sins. And Jesus promises that if we are in him, he has removed our judgment of sin, that we are forgiven and it's also a comfort, listen to this, don't miss this, it's not a one and done thing. 
It is also the comfort of an ongoing forgiveness and he give, that He gives to each and every one of us as His people. I don't know about you, but I've blown it more than once, haven't you? God is a God of second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth and ninth, and you can keep counting chances. His grace is greater than all my sin. Aren't you proud of that today? Aren't you thankful for that this morning? He says, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Going back to my boys, you know, there's times where they're fighting and it's like, I'm sorry, man, I didn't mean, you know, I didn't do that on purpose. He made me do it. And it's like, no, you did it because you're a sinner just like me. But then there's moments where I see God working in their hearts and in their lives and, and I'm going, man, that's exactly what this looks like as we enter into the kingdom and as we walk through the kingdom as kingdom kids, as citizens of God that God's Spirit gets in us and starts to shape us and change us from the inside out, that it convicts us of our sin and it points those things out. And when we realize that we're poor and that we're broken and we're separated from our sin, God's Spirit starts to work in us and change us and transform us and our heart begins to be softened and be in tune with the things of God. My seven-year-old last year in first grade was doing what boys do out on the playground and they pick up rocks and they're chunking them and trying to hit stuff. And there's a little girl over here on a tire swing, and my seven-year-old picks up a rock and chunks it and hits her right in the forehead with a rock. <laughs> Some of you have probably been there before. Well, he panics. He's, he, he's, she's crying. She's got a big goose egg on her head. The PE coach runs over there and grabs her like all of us would. He's like, are you okay? And then Colton's right there, and she's like, why are you throwing rocks? And he's like, I don't know. I didn't mean to. And so he's broken and, and hurting by this. So he comes home. He confesses to his mom and dad. The PE coach and the teacher call us and they make us aware of this. And so we have a talk. We call the girl and her parents and check on her. And they're like, it was an accident. She's fine. She's okay. She just got a little goose egg. And we're like, okay. And so Col we said, hey, Colton, when you go back to school tomorrow, find her, walk up to her, tell her I'm so sorry. Will you please forgive me? I didn't mean to hit you with the rock. Um, all of that happened. And then all of a sudden, we thought we were past that. And then weeks later, like six weeks later, one night, we're, Lauren and I are sitting in our bedroom. And he just comes walking in our bedroom and sits on the bed just sobbing. And I said, what is wrong? Like, did Brock punch you? Like, what happened? And he's like, no. And we said, what is wrong? And he is just a like, snotty, crying mess. I'm like, well, something serious has happened. And he said, I just can't stop thinking about that little girl that I hit in the head with a rock. And I said, buddy, that was six weeks ago, man. And he said, I know, but I just can't get over it. Like, I just, I'm, I'm so worried that I hurt her bad. I don't, and I, I'm just sorry for what I did. And I said, listen, buddy, you're forgiven. Like, I love the fact that your heart is being softened and you're in tune with this and you're understanding what it looks like to mourn or grieve over sin. And when you hurt someone or you hurt, you do something wrong that, you're, that it should mourn you and grieve you and you should, you, should, you should feel this way. But at the same time, we've got to get past this. And I think a lot of times us Christians, we hold on to things not realizing God's already forgiven us. We're mourning over something that's already been forgiven and forgotten. And God's saying, hey, it's time to keep moving. Keep going. You're forgiven. And so I'm grateful, but that's the way it should look in our lives with sin. Like Colton, we should walk in and we should go, man, I'm, God, I'm so sorry. 
And I, I'm sorry I broke your heart. I'm sorry I did what I did. Please forgive me. And then after he forgives us, we got to keep moving. And so that leads us into number three. You see, being poor in spirit leads to mourning, which then produces this next one, this third one called meekness. Meekness is kind of a funny word, and it's misunderstood most of the time when we say it. If you're like me, you used to think, oh, I'm, I'm not meek. Meek is weak. Meek is, me, weak. Meekness is just some kind of weakness. I, I don't want to be meek. Let me, let me give you something. Meekness is not weakness. If you're taking notes, write that down. Meekness is not weakness. Growing up in West Texas, I had some friends that were some crazy cowboys. And uh, we would leave school on like Fridays and they would go out to these ranches on the weekends and they would go out there on these ranches to break horses. Anybody know what breaking horses is? Yeah, some of you out here in East you're familiar with that. And I was like, you guys are crazy. I'm not doing that. So here's what breaking a horse. They would go out to these ranches and they would find these wild horses and they would get on the horse. And I don't know if you've ever seen this, but if it's a wild horse that's never been ridden, guess what they don't like? They don't like to be ridden. And so these cowboys would get on their back and they would come out of the chute and they would be bucking and kicking, doing everything in their power to throw that cowboy off because they don't want the cowboy on their back. And so, of course, my friends would get thrown in the dirt, kicked and stepped on and everything else. They would get back up and you would think that would be enough, but no, they would go back for more. They would go back and they would get back on the horse and they would keep doing this and the horse would buck and kick and throw them off. They would get back up, dust themselves off and get right back on. And they would do this over and over and over again until eventually the horse submitted to the rider on its back and they would start to break the horse. They would tame the horse. You see the proper term when you hear that word, when I talk about breaking of a horse, the proper term for that was, for breaking the horse was this word that the horse had been meeked. It had been broken and now it yields to the rider. It still, listen, don't miss this, it still has the same strength, it still has the same fire, it still has the same power, but now it is strength under control. That's what meekness is. It is a compliant spirit. It is when I am humbly relinquishing my will and fully submitting to God's will. I am coming under His yoke, under His rule, under His reign in my life, and it is me saying, God, I am giving you control. I want what you want for my life. I don't want to be in charge anymore. I want you to be in charge. The best way I can describe it and the shortest way I can describe it is this. I am second. God, you are first and I am second. That is what it means to be meek. It is surrendering my will to the God's will. You see, Jesus set the example for us in this. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in spirit, or some translations, for I am gentle and meek in heart, right? And you will find rest for your souls. Let me tell you something. Jesus was not weak. Jesus was meek because he submitted his will to the will of the Father. And that is what meekness is. Meekness is not weakness. It is you and I surrendering and submitting, saying, God, I want what you want for my life. I'm giving you control. In verse 5, he continues, he said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is an already not yet promise, if you will. You see, meekness produces this deep contentment in us that we don't have to be in control. It, it, it creates in us this contentment that we can actually now 
let loose and go, okay, God, you're in control. I'm not in control. And I can actually start to enjoy life more fully as I give you control of my life. It is also a still to come promise in this, that those who assume this posture in Christ, that we, you and I, if we are in the kingdom, that we will also inherit a new heaven and a new earth. Listen what D.A. Carson says. He says this about being this beatitude. Moreover, one day he will come into the fullness of his inheritance when he will find the beatitude fulfilled most literally. 50 billion trillion years into eternity, if I may speak in terms of time, God's people will still be rejoicing that this beatitude is literally true. In a new heaven and a new earth, they will be grateful that by grace they learned to be meek during their initial three score years and ten. This means that you and I can live in full surrender knowing that in Jesus we have all that we need and that there is an inheritance waiting for us that is far greater than anything this world ever has to offer. It is me saying, God, you're in control. And God, I know that I will not only inherit this earth and I will experience the blessed life here and now, but I will also experience the blessed life forever with you in a new heaven and a new earth. And so I look forward to that promise being fulfilled someday. And that leads us into the the third posture, then leads us into the fourth posture. The fourth posture is this, verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What does Jesus mean when he says hunger and thirst? He's using a a metaphor here that most of us cannot relate to, but was very, very familiar to those in Jesus' audience at this time. It's describing a depth of craving for food and drink that causes pain. You see, starvation is a terrible thing. In 2 Kings in the Old Testament, we read about true starvation, and we see that mothers were even cannibalizing their children that they were so hungry. So that's something, again, like me and Haiti, that we can't even fathom or wrap our mind around. But when, when Jesus says, those that are hunger and thirst for righteousness, in other words, they would have this insatiable craving deep within them that wants more and more of what God has to offer In the Old Testament, hunger and thirst was used in reference to a person's deep and desperate longing for spiritual nourishment. Jesus says that his disciples will live with a deep and desperate spiritual craving for righteousness. If that is what we're supposed to live with, this deep longing, this craving, this desire for righteousness, then we need to know what righteousness is. So what is righteousness? Let me just tell you this, it is not something, but it is someone. Did you hear that? It's not something that we strive after, it is someone. In other words, it is the perfect life of Jesus. It is life as God designed it to be. Simply put, if you're taking notes, Jesus is saying this, blessed are those who have an ongoing desperation for my life to become their life. In other words, I want more of you, God, and less of me. It is, you must become greater and I must become less. I'm craving and longing that I would see and experience more of Jesus in my life. If we are kingdom citizens, 
we should have a constant craving for the life of Jesus to be a reality in us that becomes our greatest desire. Like food and water for our body, we should spiritually crave righteousness, not out of duty, but out of delight, because that is what we desire most. Jesus promises that when this craving is in us, guess what he says at the end of that? He says, they will be satisfied, right? He says, he will satisfy us. See, in Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, we are, enable, we are able to experience righteousness, the, this righteousness, and it, and it alone is the thing that satisfies the soul. Uh, I, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about, um, I don't know if any of you are like me, but like to eat. And there's a few meals, like certain time of the year that you really look forward to, or a few meals that maybe my wife or my mother-in-law or certain family members cook. And I was thinking about this. I was thinking, man, there are certain dishes or meals that I have that as soon as I'm eating that meal, like while I'm eating it, I'm already thinking about going back and getting more. Have you ever had, y'all ever experienced anything like that? Let me just get, Thanksgiving's coming up, right? Not too far away. Thanksgiving is one of those meals where like, I'm, as I smell it, I'm anticipating, I'm looking forward to it. And like that sweet potato casserole, as I eat that with the pecans and the brown sugar on it, it's like making my mouth water right now thinking about it. But as I'm eating, I'm like, man, this is too good. This should just be dessert. But as I'm eating, I'm like, I don't want to fill up on too much stuff here because I'm going back for more. And then guess what? Like three o'clock this afternoon, I'm getting some more. And then guess what? At like five o'clock today, when that when I can breathe, I'm going back for some more. And then again, before bed, when nobody's looking, I'm in there getting some more. That's what, then the next day I eat some more. And so I eat on that stuff because it's so good and I'm craving it and I, and I only get it a couple times a year that, man, I, I go back and eat it over and over and over again until I'm just like, okay, it's enough. I can wait till next year. I've had enough. I've had my share of that. That is what he's talking about when he's talking about hungering and thirsting, that it should develop in us this craving, this longing that we would keep coming back for more and more of him. It's because being poor in spirit means that we are spiritually bankrupt, which causes mourning over sin, and this drives us to meekness, and we surrender to God's will, which will then create in us a hunger and a thirst for what we desire, which is righteousness. Don't miss this. These are not steps that are just merely to be taken, trying to climb from one to another, but rather it is a holistic posture that works together, one leading to the other, and we never move beyond this. And here's what I mean by that. Listen, you and I, we enter into the kingdom by realizing that we are poor in spirit. God, I am desperate for you and I cannot experience any of these others until I experience that one and realize that I am broken and lost and poor and desperate without you. And I need you to do in my life what only you can do. And as I move into that posture, I then begin to mourn and grieve over my sin because my sin is what is separated from you, me from you. And I know that my sin breaks your heart. And so God, I'm mourning over that sin. And then as I mourn over that sin, I enter into this posture of humbly submitting myself to his will, not my will, but giving my life over to his authority, saying, God, I want you to take the reins. I want you to be in control of my life. I don't want to be in control anymore. And as I do those things, then I begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness because the Holy Spirit of God begins to work in me and move in me, and it creates this craving within me where I want, I've experienced, I've tasted, I've seen that the Lord is good, and then I want more 
and more of Jesus and I hunger for more of Him. And the more of Him I have, I delight and I want more. And then I keep doing this over and over again. Notice the circle around it. We never move beyond this. We never move beyond the, the gospel. We just move deeper into it. This is not a stair step where we master this one and then move to the next one and work on that and then move to the next. This is more like an escalator that just revolves. As I jump into the kingdom realizing that I can do nothing for myself and God saves me, then he puts me on this track where I'm mourning and I, I submit to his will and I hunger for him and I taste and see that he's good and then I go right back through that and he, he just sanctifies me. And it is an ongoing, lifelong process that I never move beyond, but I continue to move deeper into the kingdom and I get closer and closer to Jesus. You see, the number one reason that people will spend eternity in hell is this. It is because they refuse to recognize their spiritual poverty. And that's why Jesus said it is hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Why? Why is it so hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom? Because it is hard for those who seemingly have everything to recognize that they really have nothing. I've had some conversations with some friends of mine that have been wildly successful and accomplished great wealth in their life. And I remember at my last church in Odessa, I had a, a friend of mine's grandfather that was there, and he said, man, I need you to, to have conversations with, your, with my buddy Jesse. I need you to pray for him. He goes, I'm so worried. He's accomplished so much, and he has accumulated so much that he thinks he doesn't need God. He doesn't need anyone that he's done this. And it's such a scary and hard place to be. You see, the posture we assume is this, to enter into the kingdom of life, it becomes the posture of the kingdom life. Not only is it hard for a wealthy person to enter in, the same is true for the religious person. You see, we can fall into this trap where we see our goodness, our moralism, our generosity, our service, and we believe that this somehow gives us spiritual currency not realizing that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. For many, it will not be their moral failure, their addictions, their bad choices that will cause them to miss heaven. Don't miss this. Listen, it will be the pride of self-reliance, self-sufficiency, and self-righteousness. Hell will be full of a lot of good people. I didn't understand that when I was a kid and my dad would say, there are a lot of people that will sit in church week in and week out and they will break down the gates of hell. Hell will be full of a lot of people that went to church and played the game of church and they thought that they could be good enough on their own and they never realized that they were poor in spirit, that they needed Jesus to do what only he can do in their life. They were trying to earn their way to heaven, not just surrender and say, God, I'm all yours. I got nothing. They were not poor in spirit. They are rich in spirit because they think they got this. They think they can be good enough. We've got to realize that we can't do this on our own, that we have nothing, that we are in desperate need of Jesus. I can remember being 23 years old, and I was not poor in spirit. And I was rich in spirit, meaning I was full of pride full of self-reliance. I was arrogant, self-sufficient. I lived by this motto. I had it written on my bathroom mirror with a Sharpie. If it is to be, it's up to me. 
meaning I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, I'm strong enough, I'm popular enough. Everybody, I mean, it's all about me. And if I'm going to be successful, if I'm going to do these things, it's up to me. I got this. I don't need any help. I don't need anyone to do anything for me. I was lying in my bed at 2 a.m. in San Marcos, Texas, in my apartment, and the, whole, the Spirit of God wrecked my world. And I was lying there trembling and shaking and just going, man, I am not rich. I am broken. I am poor. God, I've made a mess out of my life. And God, I don't even know if you can hear me. But if you are who you say you are and you have the power to save someone like me, God, I need you to move into my life. I need you to invade every area. I need you to save me. I was on my knees, head down, hands out, saying, God, I'm desperate. I have made a mess of my life. And I'm broke. I'm poor. I got nothing to offer you except me. So here I am asking you to save me. Invade my heart. Invade my life. Take control of me. I was poor in spirit. I began to mourn over my sin, knowing that it was my sin that nailed him to the cross. And I realized what, that sin, what my sin cost God. It cost him his only son. So I began to weep and mourn, going, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the way I've lived. I'm sorry for how selfish I am. I'm sorry for the way that I've treated other people. God, I'm sorry for the way I've sinned against you because at the end of the day, all of my sin is only against you and you alone. Just like David said, God, I sinned against no one else but you. And I'm sorry, and I'm confessing my sin, and I'm asking you to save me and forgive me, and I'm, ask, I'm moving into a place where I'm going to be meek and not prideful. I'm going to humbly submit my life to yours. I'm second, you're first. God, take control of my life. And he invaded my life, and as he invaded my life, his Holy Spirit began to create a hunger and a thirst for righteousness where I went, God, I've tasted your goodness, and I want more of you. I want to be closer to you, Jesus. I want more of you and less of me. And the longer I've walked down that road, the more that that is true, that I continue to chase after him, going, God, I can never get enough of you. I want more of you and less of me. That's what I want. Jesus paints a beautiful picture of what this looks like, this escalator, if you will, that we've seen. When he tells a story in Luke, Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a story of two men, two totally different outcomes. And listen to what he says. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this out loud to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. In other words, just as if he'd never sinned. Rather than the other one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let me ask you this morning, which one are you? Have you fallen into the trap of religion where you're going, man, I do these things. And you're so busy doing all of these things for God that you really don't even have a relationship with God. 
slippery slope. I would ask you to evaluate your life. Or are you the one that realizes, man, I am poor in spirit. God, I'm on my knees, head down, hands up. I'm mourning over my sin. God, I'm submitting my will to yours. And God, I'm asking you to invade my life. I want more of you and less of me. You see, the posture that we assume when we enter into the kingdom life becomes a posture of the kingdom life. So let me ask you, New Beginnings, have you entered into the kingdom life? Have you tasted and seen that he is good? Has he truly satisfied your soul? And if he hasn't, then today needs to be the day of your salvation. And for those of us that have entered into the kingdom, let me ask you, have you tried to move beyond that posture, thinking that there's some other way to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God? If so, then we need to get back on track, realizing every day of my life, I am poor in spirit and I need God to invade my life. Every day, I should be broken over the sin in my life. Every day, I should be submitting to the will of God, asking Him to take control. And every day, as I step forward and walk deeper into the gospel, I should hunger and thirst for more of Jesus' life to invade my life. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the life that you have given us. God, thank you for the promises that we see in Matthew chapter 5, that we truly can live a blessed life, that we can have this uncommon satisfaction when we ask you to come into our heart, invade our life, that we would humbly submit our lives to you, that you would create a hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that is what we desire. God, I pray if there's anyone in this room who does not know you, that's never entered into the kingdom of heaven, that today would be the day that they fall before you and cry out in desperate need of you to invade every area of their life. God, help them to take that bold step and to surrender to you. God, for those of us that belong to your kingdom, help us to live and walk and move and have our being in you. Help that to be our posture. We love you. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.